difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Gus Van Sant's To Die For, a 1995 black comedy based on the real 1991 story of Pamela Smart, convicted of seducing a 15-year-old high school student and persuading him to kill her husband. In this episode, we'll bring in I, Tanya, Craig Gillespie's look at figure skater Tanya Harding, convicted of conspiracy in the attack on her Olympic skating rival, Nancy Kerrigan. Like Pamela Smart, Harding was a tabloid fixture for a while in the 1990s, as the dawn of the 24-7 news cycle and the rise of tabloid TV series like Hard Copy created an unending appetite for lurid stories of crime and punishment, regardless of the actual truth of those cases. I, Tanya, scripted by Stephen Rogers and based on actual interviews with Harding, her husband Jeff Galuli, and other players in the Tanya Harding case, is based around the idea that the tabloid truth wasn't the actual truth and that it doesn't do justice to Harding's real story. The media version of the story had Harding as a kind of white trash thug, violently lashing out against a more talented rival because she couldn't compete against her on the ice. But Rogers and Gillespie present the story from Harding and Galuli's perspective through sympathetic performances by Margot Robbie and Sebastian Stan. And their movie outright says that the thug versus princess narrative started long before the attack on Kerrigan, and that Harding's lower class origins had always held her back, limiting her success in the eyes of snobby figure skating gatekeepers who would never admit her talent or give her an even shot at fame because they disapproved of her origins. Is that the truth? Gillespie and Rogers are very frank about the way that they're presenting conflicting stories from players with very different perspectives, and that all of this may be self-serving. But like To Die For, I, Tanya takes a light, playful tone with a lot of ugly events, and the film is enjoyable and accessible, even at its most painful. And as a side note, the attack on Kerrigan happened in 1994, and the resulting media frenzy was actually going on as Gus Van Sant was making To Die For. In interviews, he's talked about being aware of the story and how Harding was demonized by the press, which may have colored how he made To Die For, and it especially may have influenced the inclusion of figure skating as a major sideline in Van Sant's movie. It would certainly explain why these stories echo each other so strongly. We'll talk about what I, Tanya, and To Die For have in common after this break. The haters always say, Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth. I was the best figure skater in the world at one point in time. Call out a clean skate. Stop talking to her. That girl is your enemy. Waiting for the Jeff was my first date ever. And my mom came. You need to see a wholesome American family. I don't have a wholesome American family. Nothing's ever your fault. I was embarrassed for you. My entire life, I've been told I wouldn't amount to anything. You know what? Maybe I would. So I'm just going to leave this off by saying I was really resistant to watching this movie. And it's I remember convincing you. To you had to talk me into it. And it was because somewhere in the back of my head, I I don't want to hear about Tanya Harding. Like I was I was just like, they're going to try to like rehabilitate her image. That just seems really self-serving. But I've come to trust Genevieve's uh, perspective. Genevieve, why don't you give the pitch for this movie that, that talked me into seeing this movie since other people may have that hump to get over? It does and it doesn't absolve her of it absolves her of guilt in this specific case, or of most of the guilt, but it doesn't necessarily absolve her of wrongdoing. It doesn't make her into a saint. What I like about this film is that it explores the nuance of this story in a way that makes you question both the story you know and the story you're being told. Like I'm really a sucker for meta narratives and what I like so much about I Tanya is the extent to which it is commenting on what it's doing as it's doing it in a way that I just find really, really clever and entertaining throughout. So. What did you guys think? Oh I liked it. You know, like to die for it has a really tricky tone. It has to balance. And I mean, it is funny. It's a funny film. I think it actually gets funnier as it goes along, but it also doesn't look away from the, the horrible, abusive relationship mm -hmm. uh, between Tanya Harding and, and Jeff Galuli. And those performances are great. But Sebastian Stan is remarkable as Galuli because he comes off as, as such a 
ineffectual loser, but he's also, you know, the way he takes it out on, on Harding is really ugly. And it seems like exactly the kind of way someone like this would behave. And it's totally believable. It's funny to me. That, I mean, they're both, we've seen both of them in uh, superhero stories recently. Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad and Sebastian Stan has been the Winter Soldier since the Winter Soldier started being a thing. And you can see glimpses of Harley Quinn in her here from time to time, especially when she's doing her like, big crazy smile. Grin. Yeah, <laughs> I cannot see the Winter Soldier and Sebastian Stan at all. No, <laughs> I had I had to pause and ask my wife who who's playing it. I, I'd forgotten it was Sebastian Stan. I didn't recognize him, and, and yeah. he, he looks like about half as much dude as uh, as the Winter Soldier yep. is. And he makes virtually no impression, and the Winter Soldier would make it easy to forget him. <laughs> what about here, Scott? Sorry, what did you Sebastian think of this film? <laughs> that was a sick burn. Um, so uh, I think. I think maybe I like it a notch less than the rest of you, though I do like it. And I think it may be a similar situation with To Die For, where there are these elements of the film that are in conflict with each other. Specifically, you know, the tone of the film, which is very light and flip and funny, and is almost reminded me of one of those Coen Brothers-esque dumb capers you know mm-hmm, but, uh, sure. so it has that element to to it but it also gets into tanya harding's life and her it's a biopic it's a, you know it, it's it's not necessarily i think a portrait of a scandal as much as it is a biopic yeah but but i'm saying like i think that funny caper part of it and just the tone of the film sort of takes away from the impact of the abuse and the poverty i guess or, or struggle anyway that she had to face as well it makes that seem less serious and have less of a impact i mm-hmm. think so these two elements are kind of that war for me in terms of really making the film great though i do think it's a good film and it, it was especially good i saw it back to back with the other big awards chasing sports movie this year um battle of the sexes and this film is a million times better than battle of the sexes so i was at least uh happy about that i i don't think this movie is nearly as hold or flawed as to die for i mean to me the conflict between kind of some of the tone and the content is handled really well it could be so easy for this to be another depressing heavy melodrama about small town girl trying to fight her way out of poverty and being stymied at every turn by you know rich bastards and instead it kind of becomes this it reminded me more than anything of the informant because mm-hmm. there's there's once again that kind of like the lightness and the comedy but also the conflict is very direct between the stories that people are telling and telling themselves and telling us and the idea that there might be a, an actual truth out there that is not the stories that they're telling. And I think Gillespie and Rogers make some really interesting use of like fourth wall breaking, mm-hmm. direct into the camera interviews and direct conflicts between this is his version, this is her version. They cannot possibly both be true. So we're, we're kind of going to put it in your lap. It also reminded me a bit of The Big Short, which also uses that that kind of manic pacing and fourth wall breaking to make... From- Margot Robbie. (laughs) Yeah, including uh, from Margot Robbie in a bathtub to kind of make light of serious things and make what could be a very difficult or very boring story, like accessible to just about any audience, I think. Yeah, I I think the biggest criticism I've seen leveled at this film is sort of in the vein of what Scott touched on and just in its handling of abuse and of domestic abuse and like the reading that it is making light of it. And I don't really have that problem with it because I think Tanya's history of violence and abuse is just so central to the story that is being told here. And like this movie makes it very, very explicit, especially toward the end. There's that kind of monologue from her. You know, she's talking about the scandal and saying it's like I was being abused all over again, but this time it was by you, all of you, you're my attackers. And then when she's talking at the very end about being a boxer and she's like, violence is all I know. And, you know, we we see that her, her mom abused her growing up. So I think it's definitely a through line throughout the film. And it is approached i don't think it's approached in a consistently lighthearted way there are moments i think that like that you're talking about that where it plays with a structure that can come off lighthearted but i don't i just watched this film again hours before coming here with this in mind like trying to look for places where it made comedy out of abuse nothing like that stuck out to me on the second viewing i think it's just having that through line in a movie with this tone, I think maybe creates that sense. 
I think there's a wryness to the way mm. abuse is handled. And I think it's presented very much as Tanya Harding's wryness, as something that she – like we, when we see her talking to the camera, she is an older woman who's looking back on her life and kind of commenting on what she sees as dumb mistakes she made that got her where she is. And she does that with a very mordant kind oh, of She humor. never admits to mistakes, though. She never admits to wrongdoing or fault of any kind. Really? Like, that, I, that's like such a quintessential part of that character and mm. I think is like so central to – to me feeling that it doesn't absolve her entirely because she, there's so many instances in this movie where she's like, it's not my fault, you know, where she's blaming someone else for, for what happened to her. I, I mean, I, I just I think that the way the film is structured, you have to see her staying with Galuli in spite of the abuse as as something that she's presenting as a mistake, don't you? Yes, I agree in terms of Galuli. She definitely presents it as a mistake. But I think, again, she kind of frames it in a way that, like, this just happened to me. Like, the world just happens to you. There is no truth, you know? And, <laughs> and she, there's sort of just, like, a, a disconnect from her own actions, you know, that I think plays out in a different way with the Galuli story. Huh. So that's interesting because I'm starting to turn a little bit on what's being said here and that we are seeing the film as a reflection on events of the past rather than a timeline that just moves forward, which I said was a strength of, that was what To Die For does as well. And maybe when you look at it that that way and tell the story that way depictions of things like domestic abuse can be colored a little differently if we're seeing them as they mm -hmm. occur in the proper timeline right does that make any sense it or makes I... a lot of sense because it's her looking back on this is how i got here as opposed to us like watching her make a mistake over and over and hoping she'll get out of it we know she's not going to get out of it we know where she ends up we know a lot of the details of the story much like with to die for starting with the murder and then jumping back we know our arrival point we're mm -hmm. just we're watching the departure leading up to it where's everybody stand on Allison Janney in this film I was gonna ask that question too I, I always like her and it's a little much here I thought I would think that if it wasn't for the what it pulls over the credits where it shows you the actual yeah. interviews a la the disaster artist uh, is side by side isn't you that know? cheating though I mean you know it's, like, it's super cheating but it's still super effective yeah it's effective but it's, the character has to work on her own like I nothing is I mean I'd feel differently if I watched it again but I thought it was just it grew increasingly cartoonish over the course of the film. You, you definitely feel that there's like one point where it's the story is very focused on Tanya and Jeff, and then uh, her mom interjects like, "Well, we're really losing my storyline here," you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is I I think very funny, but it does kind of underscore the somewhat caricature aspect of that. I, I think she's at her best in the early scenes when she's uh, with Tanya as a child. Yeah, I love the, the scene of her at the skate taking her yeah. to the skating rink. Yeah, the overbearing stage mom stuff works really well, and I think it grows less effective as, as the film goes on. I love Alice and Janney in this film. Okay. I, I agree that the character itself feels incredibly over the top. I mean, the, the character feels like a cartoon, but I think that serves the over-the-topness of the movie itself. I think mm -hmm. because this movie is presented so much as a series of subjective perceptions, particularly Harding's subjective perceptions, the fact that Alison Janney's character is so over-the-top, that's how she saw her mom. And uh, she may have seen her mom as an outsized cartoon who dispensed nothing but, but invective and particularly ugly, over-the-top, ridiculous invective. I think... The reason this movie resonated with me so much is because it doesn't it doesn't ever pretend to be the truth. It's all about these subjective perspectives mm -hmm. and, and how these people see each other and see what they went through. And it could all be a bunch of lies. It just makes them very entertaining lies, I think. This movie is just so much for me a reflection of its protagonist, like in its in its style and its filmmaking approach. Like it feels like Tanya Harding as a movie. I mean, it's big, it's brash, it's unsubtle, it says what it's thinking, it's maybe not entirely honest all the time, you know? And it's surprisingly very technically accomplished. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. We, 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 I don't want to end this first segment without talking about the skating sequences, which I, you know, they, they make this film so much fun. Like, they're so, so good. I think, Scott, when I, when yeah. I, talked about it on the show for your next picture show you you put it like there's no reason for them to be as technically no. accomplished as they are no it's like it vastly overachieves <laughs> on that front because you know the rest of it is done in that 
you know, mock documentary style and there's not a huge amount of flash to it. And then you get to the skating sequences and they're really well done. And I think that strengthens the film so much because her style on the ice is so relevant to the story that plays mm-hmm. out and, and relevant to our whole perception of what figure skating is in terms of it, be, it being a sport or being spectacle or some mix of the two and the the, the trouble that, that it's always had about getting the type of it's gotten the attention but not necessarily the respect uh that other sports in the the winter games get because of these stylistic aspects Mm -hmm. that overwhelm you know the athleticism that somebody that a tanya harding who may be somewhat devotes their life to it right i mean just somebody who can pull off the triple axle or pull off you know a physical feat that the other skaters can't pull off that should be rewarded for that and the film needed these sequences to be as good as they were to get that across to have a good underdog sports story, you have to make the the argument that the underdog is good at sports. And in this case, there's such a contrast between those shots of her off the ice smoking sulkily and, and throwing her cigarette on the, the rink floor and what she looks like out on the ice. If those scenes felt felt fakey or artificial, I just I don't think that the film would work. Like we have to admire her. Like you were saying about Ileana Douglas's character in To Die For, it's important that there's something something that she's good at, that she's accomplished with, and that that defines her life. And it's important that she cares as much about skating as she does. Most people don't even understand how insanely difficult it is to attempt a triple axel. There's a reason why nobody was trying it. You skate backward and then take off from a forward position on your left leg, and then somehow... Fucking hurl yourself blindly three and a half rotations like you're light as shit, which I'm telling you Tanya never was. Land on the opposite foot on the back outside edge of a razor-thin blade. It's that extra half rotation when you already did three that made us call Tanya the... Charles Barkley and figure skating. Well, to wrap up before we get into connections, can we can we just talk a little bit about the performances? We we touch on uh, Sebastian Stan and, and how completely he disappears into this kind of nebbishy thug uh, kind of character, but Robbie is also incredibly important to this film in terms of her her bigness and her brightness. Allison Janney is just a perpetual winner for me. I I think that as cartoony as that character is, it wouldn't work as well for me if somebody else was doing it. What else stands out for you about the the performances? Well, I just the character is also cartoony, but I enjoyed uh, Paul Walter Hauser as uh, Sean, <laughs> uh, Jeff Galuli's sidekick and self-styled like security security expert. He's just like a, a human shudder. Like I can't look at him without this. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. Uh no, it's well cast uh, throughout. I know was there anyone else? Well, if we're throwing around cartoony as a descriptor, you got Bobby Cannavale as the the hard copy guy who, speaking of, did not did not recognize. And then I was did, and I was like, oh, obviously it's Bobby Cannavale. Oh my gosh, it is now I don't recognize. This is like this is like Zac Efron in uh, in uh, the Disaster Artist, right? Yeah, I mean that character is not like hugely pivotal to the action, but he definitely does sort of give voice to some of the themes, particularly as they pertain to the twenty four hour news cycle and the stories place in it. I, I wish there'd been more of him or. Maybe just a better use of him. I I thought he felt very artificially inserted. Yeah, it it felt like it was he was put throughout the movie to set up the last act of the movie, kind of, you know, but he didn't really have a place in it before then. But you can't really like introduce him at the very end either. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know what else we can't suddenly introduce without no warning is uh, a break for a, an ad. Segway, segway. So I'm going to uh, just suddenly introduce a break for an ad. We'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Itania and To Die For. I thought being famous was going to be fun. I was loved for a minute. Then I was hated. Then I was just a punchline. It was like being abused all over again. Only this time it was by you. All of you. You're all my attackers, too. 
Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think the thing I most want to get at here is looking at how these two films deal with sensationalism in the press. I think To Die For focuses less on the role of the press as like actively culpable, as having a part in reconstructing the story in a bad way. But it is sort of there in the background as enabling her and enabling this whole story. It's just kind of a background thing. One really interesting contrast to me between the two movies is how much Suzanne in To Die For understands the press and is trying to weaponize it for her benefit, whereas Tanya Harding is in the other side of that, is dealing with a press that is weaponized to destroy her. She doesn't have control of her narrative in the way that Suzanne at least seeks control of her narrative. That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, Tanya is just presented as so naive in this respect. You know, when the dominoes are starting to fall and and Jeff is worrying to her about getting their story straight and she thinks they're talking about her Wheaties deal. Like, she's so focused on skating at this point in her story that, like, the media story, the way it spirals, just, like, totally takes her by surprise in a way that, as you say, uh, echo chamber, uh, Suzanne would probably never be surprised by and would probably... Uh, manipulate to her own ends. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it, but I guess that does sort of come to a head at the point where she's having to run out to prevent her truck from being towed and in the process is exposing herself to the press, which makes her miserable, as opposed to that, that sequence where Suzanne is slowly drifting out the door to talk to the press and the cops are saying you Mm -hmm. don't have to, but it's clearly this is everything she wants. A lot of the press narrative in uh, To Die For reminded me a good deal of Gone Girl, how the press is manipulated and used in that film, especially towards the end. Yeah, I mean, with I, Tanya, I I found it so hard to think of it outside of this sort of cultural reevaluation we've been going through the past year or so of the stories of the dawn of the 24-hour news cycle, you know, with OJ Made in America last year, and then you had casting John Bonet, that documentary from this year. That was another big story from this era that sort of reckoned with the blow up of media scandal that was happening in, in the mid nineties. And this is part of that little mini trend too. Again, I kind of briefly mentioned this in the first half, but like to die for doesn't have the benefit of hindsight that I, Tanya and these other uh, films I'm mentioning do. So it doesn't have the sort of reevaluation feel that this does. Yeah, you can kind of see them try to figure it out. Another movie that's kind of doing the same thing, uh, much more wildly, but Natural Born Killers had the Robert Downey Jr. character mm-hmm. who was like uh, supposed to be. Which one had the Australian host? Uh, hard copy or Current Affair? Well, whichever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's a thinly veiled version of that. I mean, all that begat TMZ. And we know where it's going now in a way that it wasn't. But I don't know. Maybe Actually, you know, look, thinking about TMZ, maybe maybe Natural Born Killers had it right. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe it was that monstrous, that monstrous vision that, that was made reality. The way these stories are processed hasn't changed that much either. I was just thinking about... Um, a scandal similar to Tanya Harding's and, you know, think about Ryan Lochte, Ryan Lochte's little <laughs> last yeah. job. I mean, just <laughs> what an absolute moron, uh, embarrassing the, the uh, U.S. on an international stage. But the, the way that was picked up and handled through the press really echoed the Harding affair, too. Yeah, and there is one little bit in I, Tanya, to that effect that I didn't catch on first viewing and did when I rewatched it today is the moment when Jeff Galuli is talking about, you know, how the press just suddenly disappeared one day and he's watching them all pack up and leave through the window. And on the TV is the beginning of the O.J. Simpson sure. coverage, mm-hmm. you know, and it's very clearly showing the passing of the baton from one scandal of the moment to the next. I was around to experience this scandal, uh, or the Tony Harding affair, and I think I'm grateful for this movie for giving this kind of a context for what happened uh, without completely letting her off the hook. The media narrative was slanted in a way that was very harsh to her and didn't really give you a complete picture of what her life was like and what she was like. And, and uh, it was it was nice to see just at least a shred of redemption uh, in this movie or at least... Uh, the suggestion thereof. Yeah, at least, a, <laughs> at least one more dimension to the story, mm-hmm. a third dimension. Or the, just the acknowledgement that, that there are more dimensions, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that it's not all easy heroes and villains. Just a curious bit of perspective, there's, 
there is a still a very active uh, Dissolve Facebook group from, from our old website, the Dissolve, and it's attracted a lot of younger film enthusiasts. I noticed the conversation there. Some did not know who Tanya Harding was. Oh, sure. Interesting to think of something that was so inescapable for a while in, in, in our lives has, has only been revived for some people. Or, you know, it's a new story thanks to this film. I mean, do you not work primarily with millennials at Upper <laughs> Yeah, well, a little bit of that. They're going to be informed about this kind of thing, though. Uh, there's a big difference between informed and like lived through it. I mean, I sure. I, I work with a lot of millennials who are just perpetually like that's not something I'm aware of because I wasn't around for that. We've gotten some of that with uh, from Genevieve. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just about to say like I feel very proud that like this is actually something that I remember yeah. living through <laughs> that we're talking about, and I don't have to be like I was too young, Scott. I don't remember. <laughs> wow, you've got your uh, your Suzanne Stone voice right down. Let's talk a little bit. Speaking of Suzanne, let's talk a little bit about women's ambition. Like both of these movies are about women from small towns trying to make it onto our world stage. But I find what I find really interesting is while both of these movies are about the gatekeepers that get in their way, the kind of unworthy and sleazy and unpleasant gatekeepers that get in their way, it feels like To Die For is very down on Suzanne's ambition, not just because it's empty and unworthy, but because it's presented as in contrast to the family that she could have and that she is not interested in. To me, it feels very dismissive about a woman wanting to do something that isn't have kids and settle down, whereas Tanya Harding's story feels much more about she deserves this fame and people are blocking her from it. I think with To Die For and Suzanne, it's more about ambition divorced from substance that is being critiqued. Like we are made very aware of Tanya Harding's gifts as, as an athlete, like throughout this movie. Her ambition is based in very obvious concrete talent, whereas Suzanne she's striving toward a goal that doesn't feel incredibly doesn't feel well formed you know it's just she just wants to be seen she wants to be famous but as you said in your keynote it it may be being a journalist it may be being in a movie you know she doesn't really know what she wants and she is willing to work really hard and like put herself out there in a way that is admirable but we don't really get the suggestion that there are the goods to back it up she has she has ambition and she has the drive but whether she has the talent, I feel, is more of an open question than it is in Itania. Well, she's very, very pretty. And yes. She <laughs> is very aware of it and she weaponizes it. Mm -hmm. Whereas Harding seems to come up against the fact that, you know, she's not built like Nancy Carrion. She's not tall and thin. Paris is a shape. <laughs> <laughs> She she has some fairly fairly muscular serious thighs, but they give her kind of a like a low slung dumpy look compared to some of the women she's competing with on the ice. They had to actually pad Margot Robbie's body to give her that shape. And I think it's interesting just the way both of these films kind of look at women's bodies as commodities that they can leverage through ambition, but that also hold them back if they're not if they're not fitted to that ambition or at least to people's image of that ambition. Yeah, and to that point, I think it's interesting how we see costumes as armor in both of these films. And I think sort of as a reflection of what you're talking about, uh, Tasha, and putting on armor to go into a very specific kind of battle, you, you know, and... And there's there's also the matter of her just embracing, I think it kind of admires, the film admires her for embracing her, who she is. Like, this is my tacky costume. This is my horrible music. Mm -hmm. and, and everything I do on the ice balances out this. So, you know, deal with it. I think there's, there's a certain amount of admiration for for those choices and her willing to stick with it, even if the admiration kind of stops at the, once once the skating stops. Gosh, I hadn't even thought about costumes as a connection, but gosh, you're right. I mean the the costume design alone in To Die For. Oh my gosh, her outfits—they're amazing. <laughs> they're so good. Are they? Are they so good? Oh, I mean they're horrible, you know, but they're horrible in a really smart way. Like I mean, she's just always so so focus pulling. You know, like her, her outfits are always, always conceived in order to make her the center of attention. You They're know? very busy. Like this is a visually busy mm -hmm. film. There's a, there's a point in the film where she's sitting opposite her husband in the living room and <laughs> I don't quite know what to look at, her or the wallpaper. It did make me think a lot of Clueless, which also came out this, oh, this sure. year and, and used costumes similar to fashion. a similar effect. Yeah. Yes. And I, and I think I, I appreciate the degree to which I, I Tanya... Uh, aligns itself with Tanya Harding's 
irritation over those elements of style being such a big factor in holding her back and, and keeping her from the, the world-class status that she's seeking because she's worked so hard and has so much uh, athletic uh, ability but isn't fitting the mold of what of what a figure skater is supposed to be or what they conceive a figure skater is supposed to be, which to her and to certain sports types like myself seem like a lot of BS. Right? I mean, there's a lot of BS, I think, in both of these movies in terms of people holding the protagonists back. And both of them kind of seem to need to overcome that. They just they do it in very different ways. Who, who's, who's holding Suzanne back? I just come back to the meeting with that producer and his horrible tacky joke, which is very expressly grooming Suzanne mm. to service him sexually in exchange for very undefined favors. And that sense that He's we meet him like giving a seminar at a a convention like he's meant to be in a position of power and she comes to him for advice and he basically says blow me like Mm -hmm. he says it in an elaborate way. But that's what it amounts to. And there's that sense that, you know, people like Wayne Knight are she sees as him as in the way because he doesn't have ambitions any bigger than sit behind his desk and churn out non-original cable programming like she kind of makes her own barriers in the way that she comes to these men looking for validation. But like, there's nobody who's helping her in her ambitions. There's nobody who's forwarding her for her talent or for her mm-hmm. ideas. They either want something out of her or they're baffled at the idea of her wanting something at all. It's the promise of barriers to come. <laughs> um, both of these movies center on bad marriages, or at least marriages that the protagonists see as bad. And I think it's really interesting that that Itania really convinces us that this relationship is bad. I still don't quite get in To Die For, like, what's what's so bad about Matt, Matt Dillon's character, why he's got to die. He wants kids. Yeah. He wants kids. He wants her to settle down. And this is not acceptable to her. You know, you know what it does to your body. It's just gross. <laughs> Suddenly you have boobs. And that's <laughs> terrible because there's nothing that the media hates like boobs. Why can't she walk away from him? Why is it necessary to murder him? There's that line, if she divorced him, he would get the condo and the car and Walter. Walter. She'd, Walter. Get, she'd get Walter, yeah. Um, I mean, I think in terms of Suzanne and Larry, there's that scene where Larry is kind of telling her his plans for like taking over the restaurant and her what her small, stupid role in his stupid plan can be and talking about kids and like the filmmaking in that moment like with the music and the keyhole focus on his face you know surrounded by black and like her face just goes dead like it really feels like she's having a mental break Mm -hmm. in that moment i'm not saying that that like justifies what she does but i think it like explains her behavior going forward rather than like this is a resentment that she has carried through the entirety of their relationship I think it's interesting that both of these films feature a bunch of different ancillary relationships and that virtually none of them are supportive in a healthy sort of way. I mean, Tanya Harding obviously has her husband and her husband's terrible friend. She has her coach who really tries and kind of comes back when she doesn't necessarily deserve it. And that's about the closest to a a positive relationship I think we Mm -hmm. see in either of these movies. That's a great performance, by the way, too. I think I really like Juliet Nicholson is the actress. Yeah. She's yeah. very understated compared yeah. to a lot of what goes on in that film. Yeah, and like she she still is like kind of advancing the skating establishment party line to a certain extent, you know, like she has that line about no metal and, t- and lose the blue nail polish or something like that when they take their second run at the Olympics. But she advances that line like through an understanding of who Tanya is in a way that the judges and other characters who represent the skating establishment don't. Yeah, she's trying to kind of thread a thin needle between who Tanya is and what her particular talents and what she understands wins medals. So yeah. I guess she's professionally speaking the only true advocate for Tanya rather than someone who's just I mean I guess her mom is an advocate for her. Yeah, kind but of. No, it's not it's not <laughs> awful, not horrible. Yeah. 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 Um, and she's definitely horrible. Yeah. Going back to the central marriages in both of these films, I found it interesting how both the birth of both relationships is kind of presented as 
a passion that burns really hot. You know, like there's that line in To Die For about Suzanne, like having a wild side. We see some scenes that enforce the notion that they're just a couple of crazy kids, you know, and they have this passion that burns hot and then, you know, yeah. And there's definitely that with Tanya and Jeff as well, although violence is presented as being a central part of that relationship, more or less from the beginning. Although there is that like really sweet scene of them in the garage, you know, and he's talking about how incredible it is that she she can skate. He calls it her superpower. And just like her face in that moment, you, you see like how powerful it can be to be admired by someone that you like. Especially when she's coming out of a like her parental relationship being so eternally ungiving. There's just this sense of like having found approval somewhere. I mean, you can feel kind of the the naked teen, both lust and just desire for approval coming off of her. Yeah. And for it to be directed at skating, which is like how she identifies and to go to to die for like we never see Larry expressing that sort of admiration or support for what Suzanne sees as her defining characteristic you know like he in that scene i was just mentioning like he presents it as something that can just be channeled into videotaping the talent show at the italian restaurant and it's it's all the same you know so there's a a lack of recognition of how the woman identifies yeah he clearly has his moments right mm-hmm. i mean he has his, the dove bars as well he has his, <laughs> the freezer yeah. full of dove bars. and i think we have to know i mean that that relationship is one of the central relations of the film carries throughout the film and we have to be convinced about why this is allowed to sustain itself and keep this on again off again thing is allowed to happen so there has to be a certain bond there can all be abuse there's there's something there's got to be some love there and some connection and i think the film establishes that quite plausibly i mean i wish the film dug a little bit deeper into what makes her stay with him besides the fact that uh, the the there's the initial lust there's the point mid-film where she's using him because she needs him as part of her her package her image but there's on and off just kind of a sense of like why is she here and i think that the film is fairly nuanced about abuse in covering the way that abusers go back and forth between, uh, you know, attacks of whatever kind, and then comfort and reassurance, and I didn't mean to do that, kind of the seducing the victim back in again. I think it's smart in some ways, but in other ways, it just it kind of like blips past a lot of what that relationship means to her. And I, I wish it had tried a little bit harder in that regard. To me, where I got that in the film is when they get married, and Tanya's face, like in voiceover, she's kind of talking about how being married just enabled her to skate and to skate like all the other girls and we see him like being very supportive of her skating career and like making her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich you know and I think it always comes back to her skating and I think like she was with him to a certain extent because he enabled what she wanted to do and wanted to be and inertia is just a powerful force too I mean you know it's it's hard to leave you mm-hmm. know it's Hard to get someone to kill your husband, I guess. <laughs> Hard to pull it off, at least. Oh, yeah, it really is. Boy, I... Oh, wait. Uh, no, carry on. <laughs> He's not here, Tasha. It's okay. If, if anybody's listening to this and really wants to kill my husband... Wait, my husband listens to this podcast. <laughs> Never mind. Prank podcast. Prank podcast. There are a ton of other connections that we could get into, like how both films use black humor to soften ugly, uh, ugly content, how fourth wall breaking is used to kind of soften uh, the story and bring viewers in in a more comfortable way, how both of these films are, are really about kind of like small crimes that end up being uh, on a much larger scale. But we've touched on all of those to some degree. There's one that I want to get to before we close up, uh, which is music, which Genevieve touched on. Uh, But before that, is there anything just in general besides music that you guys want to say about how these two films work together? I just want to point out one kind of a very similar shot that I notice in both films because we pointed out the shot in To Die For in the first half, which is the changing room scene with Lydia and Suzanne. Like, you know, I think, Tasha, you said it was your your favorite scene in the film. And that's presumably because of what's happening in it. But the way it's shot is really interesting. The way it's lit, I should say, is really interesting in that Suzanne is lit with this very like golden spotlight and Lydia is very backgrounded in this muddy, dark uh, background perspective. Um, And it like switches back and forth between that like golden glowing light and that grubby, dirty light. And we see that 
that exact same lighting dynamic is used in Aitanya in the scene between her and her mother when she gets married and they're talking in the hallway and Tanya is lit just beautifully and golden and she's all optimism. It's She's just gotten married and her mom's there like just talking trash about her getting married and she's lit in that same just like grubby underlit way like the dynamics the character dynamics in those two scenes are not the same but the way that they are presented as a contrast through lighting i thought was just a really interesting echo between the two films neat guys any other thoughts on connections between these two films i think we did a good job picking out a, a yeah nice i was sh- i was shocked yeah. like how many yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, specifically music and the use of heavy metal, which is like a, a, a strong musical motif in, in both of these. And I think speaking of like scenes that mirror each other, we have both Suzanne and Tanya sort of like stalking somewhere back by really obtrusive metal music, you know, when Tanya's going to her lawyer. And I can't remember the exact music cue, but it is just like really driving, grating uh, metal music. And it's very reminiscent of when Suzanne is walking into the school and is backed by the same sort of just like really loud metal um obviously heavy metal is kind of throughout both films but also both films just have music everywhere they're like itania especially like the music is purposely obtrusive i i think it's a scene at the the nationals where she lands a triple axel that routine has three different music cues (laughs) you know like you have the beginning where she lands a triple axel is one music cue and then it backs out to do that slow motion you know with her talking about about it it's a different music cue and then it comes out of it to another music cue you know I feel like I'd need to go back and rewatch Itania to, to catch the music because there's there's so many things going on in that film narratively. But literally from the first moments of To Die For, I was thinking, wow, this music is is specific and obtrusive and yeah, that opening setting sequence. a mood, yeah, yeah. And then we got to the music credit, and it's Danny Elfman, and mm-hmm. I I might have actually physically slapped my forehead <laughs> because of course it's a Danny Elfman. But he throws in a little a few little metal riffs there as well too. <laughs> it is is very much like early Tim Burton era Danny Elfman score with some bespoke touches uh, for this film as well. One thing I liked about Altonia's use of music was it, it, it seemed very fitted to these characters, very classic rock, very, very unadventurous in terms of what they what they were listening to, but also that, you know, Anywhere USA classic rock soundtrack mm-hmm. provides some real moments of transcendence as well. I mean, a lot of it's songs you've heard to death, but, you know, they, they use a Dire Straits song, Romeo and Juliet, which is a song I love. They use it to great effect early in their relationship and, and sort of the song itself sort of seeding uh, uh, the, the fact that this relationship's going to have some tumult later on. Uh, it's, it's all quite well done. Yeah, I like the use of Supertramp's Goodbye Stranger sure. at the end of there, uh, you know, and The Chain, best use of The Chain in a movie this year. Sorry, Guardians. <laughs> <laughs> it is critical that, that choice of music uh, for the routines themselves are so important to understanding who Tanya Harding was as an athlete, too, as a skater, and, and as a contrast with the music choices that we tended to hear, which were a lot more conservative or even kind of like sassy. Like that, yeah. was, that was always something that irritated me about these routines. They always have these little musical moments where you could, the, Skater could do something kind of cutesy on the ice. It drives me nuts. One of these. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, no, you didn't Podcast see that. Genevieve. You didn't see that, but Genevieve totally nailed that um, little little maneuver. But flourish, flourish, a little flourish. But like, that's not what Tony Harding was all about. It was just like we're just gonna like grind, grind through this r- routine, and it's the sheer athletic prowess is gonna just over. So it'd be so overwhelming that the utter gracelessness of the whole operation is uh, not gonna attract too much. I feel like in To Die For, Gus Van Sant really uses Danny Elfman's score to underscore the individuality of this film, just how different and weird this film is by giving it this racing, excited, and in some places, like in that Iris In shot, deeply weird, almost theremin-y kind of, mm-hmm. uh, kind of background music, whereas I, Tanya uses music to underscore just the individuality of Tanya Harding herself, Mm -hmm. like her, especially her stubbornness, because she gets dinged over and over for that music. And she 
she doesn't really change. Like she's not using cutesy music by the end. She's she's using music that she cares about that means a lot to her, just like she's wearing costumes that she's made that mean a lot to her. Like up until the end, I think she defines herself as defined by her own tastes and not necessarily interested in what other people say about them. Well, To Die For is available for rental on the usual services. It's also on Blu-ray and DVD. Itania is currently in cinemas nationwide. We'll be right back with the conclusion of our individual picks for the top 10 films of 2017. This would be the part of the show where we catch each other up on films or film-related items that we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. This is Your Next Picture Show. But instead, we're going to use this time to catch up on, once again, things that we would recommend in general to people because they were our top five films of 2017. This is going to be the second half of our top ten, starting from number five and counting up to number one. Genevieve, why don't you kick us off with your number five for 2017? Sure. My number five is something that Tasha brought up in the last half of this episode. It is the breadwinner from Nora Twami. Um, it's the only animated film on my list this year. Uh, Coco would be in the top 20, but uh, didn't quite crack the top 10. But the breadwinner is there by virtue of the way it navigates its heavy source material really deftly in a way that makes it compelling and watchable. Um, the animation is frequently beautiful, but not consistently so. And I think that's an entirely purposeful and well-executed reflection of the story it's telling about finding strength and comfort in stories. So the breadwinner is my number five. Keith, what about you? I'm going to start what I feel is will be a, a stir of echoes here, naming my fifth uh, favorite film of the year, The Florida Project. Sean Baker's uh, funny and haunting and unusual look at life in the, uh, mot- the you know, sort of down on the luck motels around Disney World, these sort of transient hotels. And, and it's kind of a film in two parts that are happening simultaneously. One is a mother struggling to make ends meet, often through extra legal means. The other is her daughter, who's unsupervised and having a, a wonderful time uh, <laughs> running around and causing all kinds of mischief and the two stories are uh, overlapped in sort of sad and, and tragic ways it's a remarkable film i'm looking forward to seeing it again it's also a great looking movie uh, as well tasha my number five for 2017 is a little film called i Tanya. what episode was that featured on <laughs> that was episode this and if you want to know more about why i liked i Tanya, i would suggest rewinding to the beginning of this podcast Just hit that 15 second rewind button over hit that 15 again. second rewind button like 30 times yeah. i mean what is there to say i i found it lively and deft and funny and and sensitive and really, really well-constructed and acted. Uh, I just really enjoyed this film a lot, but we've already talked about it quite a bit. So, Scott, what's your number five? My number five is Starless Dreams. Uh, It's a documentary from Iran. It is a very simple, beautiful film that takes place entirely in a juvenile detention facility for teenage girls in Tehran. And it's um, quite powerful in, in revealing the stories of these girls, which are tragic, but also the bonds that they share and, and almost their reluctance to return to you know the outside and the abuse they're, they're almost certain to face. And what's especially powerful about the film is that it really feels for the first time that they're being listened to at all in their lives. They're like they're actually able to get their stories out in an unmediated way. And um, it's just very affecting. I saw it. It's taken a while for it to find its way out. And it came out in a very small way uh, quite early in the year. But I didn't forget it. And I wanted to place it high on my list because I love it. So Starless Reams, number five, Genevieve. All right. For my number four film, I chose BPM, Beats Per Minute, a French film from Robin Campillo about uh, the Paris chapter of the ACT UP organization set during the height of the AIDS epidemic in the early 1990s. Uh, This film came up on this podcast via a listener letter who talked about in the context of the Battle of Algiers. uh, And Scott, who is the only one among us who had seen it at that point, talked a little bit about that. But for me, what I really love, I love this film as a portrait of the interplay between social activism and the personal experience that informs it and how that relationship changes as we change. It's a really devastating film that ends in really devastating fashion, but it finds among all that devastation, these moments of love and hope as well as discord and hopelessness. And it just brings so much nuance and shading to the story that's being told on kind of two levels between the personal and the communal experience. Um, I think the balance it strikes between those 
two levels of the story is really successful and extremely affecting. Uh, this movie definitely wins the prize for making me cry the longest after it ended in 2017. I think I was a good, solid 20 minutes of crying after it ended. So <laughs> there's an endorsement for you. In front of a fireplace to the, to the, to the music of, uh, of yeah, yeah, Sufjan Stevens. This, this was was the, the devastating film for me in 2017. Sorry, call me by your name. Uh, Beats Per Minute It's my number four. Keith, what about you? Um, this film called Call Me By Your Name. Uh, I, think, I think once again, I'm going to be first to name a film that other, others will probably be naming later on. We talked about it last episode, so I won't go into length, but it's, uh, um, I'm still totally taking with its, uh, you know, slow summer long romance, uh, in this idyllic setting where things don't seem all that consequential until you realize that people's lives are being reshaped in ways that they hadn't imagined as the summer began. So I, I'm, you know, remarkable movie. Um, check it out if you haven't seen it yet. Tasha? My number four is Brigsby Bear, which is a film that probably everybody who listens to this podcast regularly has <laughs> heard me go on and on about. I saw it at Sundance last year, so it's been almost exactly a year. I came back from Sundance touting it. I went on this podcast and touted it. I touted it a bunch during the, the end of year kind of stuff. It's a very small film. It's uh, Dave McCrary's debut film, co-written and starring uh, Saturday Night Live's Paul Mooney. And it stuck with me in a, a, a really emotional way. I'm not a big emotional film goer a lot of the times, but this movie, it's about a, a man who is raised under very unusual circumstances and ends up obsessed with a TV show uh, called Brigsby Bear. And eventually he tries to, when the, the show is no longer available, for reasons best discovered not by watching the trailer, but by watching the movie, he sets out to recreate it himself with his friends. And it goes to a very be kind, rewind kind of place, talking about the joy of creativity and community and being in an environment where you're allowed to express yourself. It reminds me just a little bit of Lars and the Real Girl in that it's got that same sort of sense of a group of people supporting somebody through a an extraordinarily unusual delusion, but it's light and funny and fast-paced and friendly and deeply, deeply weird in a way I very much enjoy. So, Who Brigsby? directed Lars and the Real Girl? Who did direct Lars and the Real Girl? Craig Gillespie. Yeah. Director of I, Tanya. There you go. All right. A good reason to uh, to also, love that movie. Also, the, uh, Mr. Woodcock. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely, I have not seen that one. Yeah. Uh, Scott Tobias, what is your number four film of 2017? Uh, my number four film is Brawl in Cell Block <laughs> 99, um, which is a just filthy little noir, not noir, filthy little indie exploitation pulp film uh, by S. Craig Zoller, who did... Bone Tomahawk. It has one of my favorite performances of the year by uh, Vince Vaughn as a dude who lands in jail and then has to do make some pretty tough choices once he's there. It's just one of those just two-fisted genre films that I love, but it's also got its own distinct style. It's, a, it's just like Bone Tomahawk. It's over 130 minutes or around 130 minutes long, and it uses that time to draw out elements uh atmosphere that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a film like this i mean i, I really i could have spent all day just touring the medium security prison that vaughn lands into to start his prison descent but um i thought it was quite quite good and you can watch it for like 99 cents on itunes if you haven't seen it yet oh, uh, that so, is a well uh, so if you have a if cents. you have a strong stomach and you like the uh, lowdown genre fare i think this is first rate it's only really gory at the very end. I mean, building up to that, there is a lot of just really extraordinary character work and story work. I'm also a fan of that film. He beats up his car. He he beats a car to death with it's his amazing. bare hands because he's angry. Genevieve. So, number three, I have The Florida Project. Keith, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> you, echo, echo, echo. Keith already uh, touched on a lot of what I love about this movie. I'll just kind of underline uh, the unexpected beauty that Sean Baker finds in this unusual setting and the way that beauty colors the story we're seeing. The performances are also really great, but in my mind, the thing I always come back to again and again with this film is the visuals. Uh, the Florida Project at number three. Keith, what about you? Get Out. <laughs> no, I will not. <laughs> uh, number three is the film uh, Get Out, which we covered in episodes 66 and 67 uh, earlier this year, which is uh, Jordan Peele's directorial debut. One half of the Key and Peele comedy team, he made his, he decided to make a horror film for his first uh, directorial project, and, and it's a remarkable one, one that, that has a lot of the social satire from you know from his work uh, with Key and Peele, but is, a, is effective first and foremost as a horror movie. 
the politics of it and the uh, way racism gets baked into everyday life in ways that aren't always apparent. Uh, and then a, a character who's enters in a situation in, in which they all come to the surface. It's uh, extremely well done. I'm glad, just as a, a fan of horror movies, I'm happy to see one getting so much attention at the end of the year, but in particularly this one, which is uh, quite well done. Tasha? My number three is A Ghost Story, which Genevieve already touched on in the last half of this podcast. In the same way uh, Genevieve did, I, I this movie haunted me. And I, I, <laughs> I try not to put it that way. But. I flinch every time I do, but it's it's the best word for it. it. It's It sounds like a dumb pun, but it's the best word for the way this, this movie got under my skin from first viewing. Uh, it was one of the very few movies I made time to watch multiple times this year because it just, it stuck so hard with me. It's its use of music to evoke mood, its use of, of imagery to evoke solitude and loneliness and sadness, its use of long, long takes uh, to kind of put you in a hypnotic state. It's one of the best crafted movies uh, that I saw this year, as far as I was concerned. And I just, everything that it was laying down was something that I loved. We got into it in a lot more detail, uh, as Genevieve said, on this podcast. But uh, number number three for me, a ghost story. Scott? Uh, my number three is Call Me By Your Name. Um, we, again, we talked about it a lot on the last podcast, why I love it so much. Um, it, it totally just destroyed me on second viewing, but but I think it's just, it's a film that I love to escape into. It's just such a sensual experience, and it, it reminded me of like, you know, I mean, there's something, there's a primary thing for me with movies where they're just kind of a turn on to be around you know like the ones that are like this that are just give you that such a vivid sense of place and of experience you know and just engage you with such a florid kind of emotional quality i just i love it and it, it laid me flat i so, so number three call me by your name uh genevieve you Call Me two? By My Name is my number 11, just so, just so know. you know. I've, I know. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> it's, still, it's, still in, it's still in the top yeah, 15, right. you know? Um, but my number two is a film called Get Out, which, uh, <laughs> as Keith just said, we covered in depth on episode 67, but not with me, because I sat that episode out, as I often do for episodes <laughs> about horror films. Um, I should not have done that with Get Out, uh, because, I mean, if you need any more evidence that so this is a very special film, it is a horror film in my number two movie of the year. <laughs> It's just all about the screenplay for this for me. It's just so smart and tight and unexpected and clearly very resonant with a wide range of audiences. Uh, it was the most fun I've had being wildly uncomfortable at the movies this year. Uh, get out. Keith, number two. My number two is Lady Bird, which is Greta Gerwig's solo directorial debut. And we talked about it. I did not talk about it. I wasn't here. The show talked about it in episode 103 and 102, especially 103. Uh, it's a extraordinary coming-of-age movie uh, that you know, digs into a particular time and place and finds a, a story. I think a lot of people can see uh, their own story then, but it's, um, you know, I expected it to be good. I admired Gerwig's performances. She's not in it, but but I, I, I've uh, admired her as an actress. I admired her as a co-writer of uh, several uh, Noah Baumbach films, and uh, this exceeded all my expectations. I uh, It's a terrific movie. I've seen it twice now, and, and uh, uh, I think it's uh, richer the second time through. Yeah, Lady Bird. Tasha? Ladybird's a good movie. Uh, my number two is Phantom Thread, the latest from P.T. Anderson, and a movie that you guys are going to be hearing more about if you continue to tune into this podcast. Phantom Thread, what can I say about it that does justice to it? It was... It was one of those movies I managed to walk into almost completely unspoiled as to what it was about and what it was trying to do. It started carrying me away within 60 seconds of, of the movie starting. The music, the imagery, the performances all come together in, in just such a masterful, confident way. But I think above all, the story that it's telling, which we'll, we'll get into what inspired that story and what exactly it's echoing. The story it's telling about a young woman it takes a while to emerge. And the journey to figuring out what the movie is fundamentally about and where it's going is just one of the best journeys I've taken this year. I don't want to spoil uh, anything more for for people who haven't seen it yet. You'll have time to watch it uh, before our next set of podcasts, which we'll get into in just a minute. Uh, but number two for me, Phantom Thread. Scott? Uh, my number two is The Florida Project, which I guess a lot of us are mentioning. I was recently in Kissimmee, Florida, 
and hap- just ha- <laughs> happened upon the location in which this movie takes place, which was kind of a special set visit for me. I took a couple of photos and, and put them on Twitter. Uh, if you want to, I was very happy to see those. That was Twitter. really it was really cool. And what, one of the things that really impressed me about it is that these helicopter tours that play such a big role in the background of the story are very much taken from the reality of that place which is there's a helicopter tour place right behind the magic castle and the noise of tourists being able to see orlando and spending all the money they're spending that's not some heavy-handed gambit on uh sean baker's part that's that's the reality of the place um but one thing i want to quickly mention uh that wasn't mentioned here is Willem defoe's performance which is one of his best and uh, really kind of is at the heart of this film's empathy i guess towards these mm-hmm. characters and what they're going through because willem dafoe is in this awkward his character is in such a, this awkward spot where he really understands his tenants very well in what they're going through and certainly what the children are having to go through but he also has to run the place and it's and he's in it's a very tough spot for him to be in the way he handles himself is so touching i think uh so that's just one little aspect of the film i love but i love so much about it so the florida project is my number two genevieve we're to number one I feel like I should just I should have you all say what my number one is in unison because you all know one two three Lady Bird. Lady Bird. Lady Bird. I, yeah. I could have said I, I I was I was saying it in September. Yeah, Scott called it before I'd even seen it. Um, yeah, no brainer here. Uh, I just fell in love with these characters and all their loud flaws and quiet virtues the minute I met them. Uh, the writing and performances are just in perfect harmony, and it's a film I want to return to, to escape to again and again. I've watched it three times already. I foresee many, many more in my future. Lady Bird, my favorite film of 2017. Keith, what's your number one? Number one uh, is uh, Phantom Thread, uh, which I, I, won't, I won't belabor. We got it all next week, to, next episode, to talk about it anyway. But uh, what I did not know what I was going to get going into this movie. I knew very little uh, about it. I did not, I guess, expect some sort of strange middle ground between uh, There Will Be Blood and Punch Truck Love. It's a, it's a, it's a story of uh, power struggles and, and love and weirdly offbeat humor as well. We'll get into it next week. It's a rich film. I'm eager to talk about it, but uh, I'll, I'll for now, I'll pass to Tasha. I'm glad that that one rated for you. My number one is Get Out. Um, this will come as no surprise to anybody who listened to the film spotting uh, top 10 of the year. It was the film that uh, showed up on most of our lists. Uh, it was like it was the one big crossover of the year uh, in a very scattered year for the four of us who participated. Um, and it's all been said before. I'll just say I think that this was the best constructed movie of the year. I, I think that the script is just watertight and brilliant. And it's a mark of how much examination it stands up to that we did so much examination of it on this show. But it also, once again, it was a movie that stuck with me. It was a movie that moved me. It was a movie that brought up vast wells of emotion in the theater and then kept me thinking for for days and weeks afterward. Jordan Peele's Get Out, my number one film of 2017. Scott. Yeah, I mean, Get, Get Out's on everybody's top ten list, except mine. Um, <laughs> uh, because my number one film is Phantom Thread. It was funny, I was thinking, I got towards the end of the year... And I was like, huh, is Brawl on Cell Block 99 going to be my favorite film of the year? And then I saw Call Me By Your Name was like, oh, man, this is great. Nothing's going to beat this. And I saw The Florida Project and that got above it. And then I saw Phantom Thread and, oh, my gosh, Anderson is just working on a completely another level right now. And there's uh, I'm eager to talk about it in more detail. But uh, the whole thing just held me absolutely wrapped. I mean, it's like it's just here you know, a pin drop in my head or something, if, if that makes any sense. Uh, I was, uh, maybe that makes me sound like an idiot. But um, in any case, it was just so mesmerizing and full of mystery and revelation and, and humor. And I just, he's on all cylinders with this movie. I, I, I absolutely love it. So uh, Phantom Thread, number one. I should say I'm the only one among us who did not see Phantom Thread in 2017. I am not the the lone anti Phantom Thread person in <laughs> we this are group. Hyping at it least up not yet. You're, you're not going to be. I'm just going to go out on. I'm I'm not going to pull a Scott and say it's going to be your favorite film, but I, I am going to predict that there's so many things in this movie that are going to play directly into your your preference zones. As for now, it's just an asterisk on my films of 2017. Do we list. have other asterisks? Because I, I there are a few films I haven't seen that I feel like I need to to note. I haven't seen Dawson City Frozen Time. I haven't seen I haven't seen Wormwood, which I which I'm sure if I'd say if, if it's, it's more, a, I'm gonna, Yeah, it's a TV series. 
I was I was really bad at keeping up a documentary in 2017. Oh, I feel yeah. like that is like the big gap in my viewing of the year. I feel when, very when awkward. Cool, I didn't even consider it for my for my top hmm. films of the year list. It was released in theaters though. Rat film mm-hmm. also. I like I had I haven't seen that, and it's it's come up over and over and over with other critics. So I feel it's bad tough. about that one. Yeah, I have Brigsby Bear and Ca- so, uh, yeah, Red that's and, the other or, one. I haven't seen that Sprawl one. and Cell Block 99. Sorry, Scott. I haven't mm. seen it yet. I don't uh, know that you're gonna. I don't think you're gonna love it the way he loves it. I mean, few well, people do, but I'm. I'm. <laughs> I was really, really taken with that film. So it's it's like the rare thing that hit us both, even though it's a very Scott specific movie. You know, Scott. When I think about it, I mean, Brawl and Selbach '99 and Florida Project and Call Me by Your Name and Phantom Thread are all. all they're fundamentally the same movie, right? They're <laughs> they're so similar to each other. They are movies. <laughs> <laughs> they were all projected on yep, a screen to tell a story yeah. for to, you. And, and they all movies that played in theaters in 2017 and then made their way to the video window and different at uh, the different paces. Well, we recommend all of these movies. Uh, there's a there's a lot of crossover uh, between our lists. I feel pretty proud, I think, that I mean, we all saw probably hundreds of movies this year. Like if your viewing habits are like mine and I think at least two people in this room watch more movies than I do more successfully, we probably saw hundreds of movies and yet we we pretty consistently managed to, to end up discussing the movies that we felt most passionate about and that we are bringing up here again at the end of the year so go us four of yeah. four four of my 10 were films that we discussed yeah, on the show. five five of mine were yeah six of you expand it to the top 11 include call me by your name <laughs> <laughs> if i can't include that one you can put it on the list well at some point you've got to call an end to asterisking and i'm going to call an end to asterisking so that's it for this week's edition of the next picture show our next episodes come out january 23rd and 25th keith tell us what we're going to be discussing so in our next episodes we'll be looking at two depictions of romantic relationships as power struggles sometimes between two people sometimes between three sometimes involving the dead, sometimes involving the notion that some existences can be a kind of living death. Specifically, we'll be discussing Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 film Rebecca, an Academy Award winner for Best Picture, and Paul Thomas Anderson's latest Phantom Thread, a film deeply influenced by Rebecca. Both feature unusual relationships, large English houses, and exquisite finery. And both are highly recommended by three out of four Next Picture Show (laughs) podcasters. In the meantime, we would love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of To Die For, I, Tanya, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730, which is an option almost nobody ever takes. We want <laughs> we to hear it. your yeah, voices. I like it. Talk to us, people. Or you can email us, if you're shy, at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith. Uh, you can find me at uprocks.com and where I head up the uh, film and television coverage. You can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. Genevieve? You can find my work at the culture section at vox.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, where I published my top 15 list. <laughs> so you can find out numbers 12 through 15 on my list. What, what, what was the font that you chose? <laughs> <laughs> I published it in Comic Sans because it's my Twitter and I thought it was funny. Scott, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, not, not in, in a readable font uh, <laughs> at scott underscore tobias and you really can't find my work anywhere currently because i took a nice long vacation and so i cut off the tap on that but <laughs> in the new year you'll find my work uh, at uh, new york times uh, washington post rolling stone and other such fine publications npr is where i do most of my film reviewing so uh, tasha what about you uh, are you not the editor-in-chief of oscilloscope yes Susan? i am i am and I, we've got we've got some good stuff uh, happening uh, in 2018 so well i am the film and tv editor at theverge.com where you can find my top 15 for 2017 and a lot of other things i write about film and television you can find me on twitter at tasha robinson i occasionally review books for npr and you can hear me talking about film for four hours on film spotting with adam and josh and chicago tribune uh critic michael phillips on our top 10 films of 2017 episodes four hours guys <laughs> it was a lot of movie we missed you <laughs> you uh, you wouldn't have missed me well you wouldn't have missed me if i would have been here that that's stupid <laughs> it's it's true though it's like that buckaroo bonsai <laughs> <laughs> you can say you missed me because if i'd been here you would have been throwing things at me as i uh you know fought you tooth and nail on uh, call me by your oh, name so gosh. it's it's actually fortunate that i wasn't here oh, 
We can just live with Scott's uh, angry distrust. I know, I'm already getting upset. But go ahead. <laughs> See, we could have had a whole hour of that. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider subscribing. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. You guys have been so generous with the ratings and reviews. They're a delight to read. Thank you so much. But keep them coming because every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Everybody calls me